You're listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast, where we interview entrepreneurs who have sold their companies and the advisors that help them. We elicit expert advice from exit planners, attorneys, merger and acquisition experts, accountants, business appraisers, and financial advisors, all with a goal of educating you about the sales process. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started a sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. And now, here's your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's Noah Rosenfarb, the author of Exit, Healthy, Wealthy, and Wise, and from Freedom Business Advisors. Today's guest is David Friedman. David has led a company called RSI, an insurance agency, and built a tremendous culture there and sold it to a large multinational called Gallagher Benefit Services. And since then has been going around the country teaching other organizations how culture influences performance and the value of business and the performance of that organization. So David, thanks for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure, Noah. Great to be with you. Tell me a little bit about the background of RSI and how you stumbled upon culture as, as really a driver of your business. What, what happened, Noah, is that so RSI was an employee benefits consulting company. And I got into that business. My father had been in that business, and I had gotten into it right out of college. And in the early years of our business, it was mostly my family members. And so at one point, we had 15 or 20 employees, and about 15 of them were my family. And when we began to expand well beyond my family, it occurred to me that, you know, the people that were in my family all grew up together, and so we all shared a certain kind of value system. But when we began to hire lots of people who were not part of my family, it occurred to me that I can't just assume that they have the same value system that we do, and I better be clearer about communicating what's important to us and teaching that over and over again to make that be a part of how we do business. And over time, we were very intentional about that and ended up you know, growing that company to over 100 people and over $18 million in annual revenue. And the cornerstone of everything that made us different was the culture that we had created. It was at least 50% of why companies bought from us and stayed with us. And it was certainly more than 90% of why employees came to work with us and why they stayed with us. It was really everything about our differentiation was our culture. But it really began with, you know, it wasn't so much this brilliant business strategy that I had as much as it was a simple recognition that when we expanded well beyond my family, I can't assume everybody knows the same thing that I know or values the same things that I value. I have to teach. Maybe you could either distinguish or correlate values and culture. Well, you know, the way that I describe culture, and I think one of the challenges for most companies and one of the reasons it's so hard for most companies and most CEOs to do anything about their culture is that they define culture in such an esoteric kind of way. So, so often companies define culture as the style and the attitude and the feeling and the environment and the way that things are and all these kind of nebulous abstract terms. And when you define culture in that way, it's hard to figure out, well, what the heck do you do about any of that? I define culture very much in behavioral terms. So I think of a culture as the way things get done in a company. 
it's the behaviors that people do every day. It's the way that people relate to each other. It's, the, it's specifically the things people do. So the reason that's so important is that when we define culture in behavioral terms, well, then it's really simple or uncomplicated to figure out what to do about it. I just have to get, I just have to be clear about the behaviors that I want people to do and articulate them with great clarity and then teach them over and over and over again. So it really becomes just a behavioral change issue. I think values, you know, I make a big distinction between values and behaviors. Values to me are abstract concepts. They're, they're not actions. So examples of values are things like quality or integrity or teamwork or respect or innovation. These are ideas and they're, they're good ideas and they're important, but behaviors are actions. They're things I can literally see you doing. So for example, some of the behaviors that we taught in my company were things like practice blameless problem solving or check the ego at the door or listen generously or create a feeling of friendliness and warmth in every client interaction. These are things you can do. And the reason that's so important is that when we talk about values, which is what most companies do, values, because they're so abstract, they could mean so many different things to too many different people. So when we say, for example, that one of our values in our company is respect, well, everybody's got a different definition of what does it really mean to be respectful? And so because it's so variable, it's really not very useful to us. It sounds like a good idea, but it's not very practical. But if I teach people the behaviors that I want them to do, that's really practical. That's actionable. That I can make happen. So I think one of the problems is that so often when companies try to work on their culture, they spend their time worrying about visions and missions and values, which are all a bunch of abstract things that sound great and they look nice on a poster. But at the end of the day, for most companies, they're really not very relevant to what people do every day. I try to couch everything in terms of behaviors. What do you want people to do? If we can be clear about what we want people to do in this company, how we want them to be, well, then we can, we can teach that. And we've got structured ways of teaching that over and over and over again until those behaviors become embedded into people's DNA such that it's just the way they are. And now you really have something you can do. So in terms of, you know, someone's value system that they walk into the interview with, if they differ, you know, innately from the behaviors that the company is looking for. So let's say you said, you know, have a warm interaction with all of your clients. And there's certainly a way that you could teach people to have that. But maybe someone that walks in the door doesn't have that as their own personal value system. That's just not something that they're attentive to. Perhaps yeah. they're a little gruff or, you know, uncaring in, in some way. Are you saying that behavior could be taught? And so if it, even if it's not ingrained, maybe we shouldn't benchmark them on the way in based on that? Or, or, or yeah, is their, their current uh, value system important as well? It's very important. And so it's a great question you're asking. And, and what I do, the first thing I would say about that is I teach people that most people show up to the workplace with their value system already pretty much done. So they are who they are. And you know, the value system came from their upbringing, their family, their previous experiences. So it's mostly a completed picture by the time they show up at your front door for an interview. And so you're not going to do much to change who they are. So I can teach them skills and abilities, but who their basic personality and basic value system, I'm not going to do much to change that. So the implication of that is that I have to be good about hiring people who are already a good fit with what we're trying to create because we're not going to change them and make them a good fit if they aren't. Now, more specifically to your question, when I help companies to figure out, so how do they get good at selecting the right people? 
I take the behaviors, I have a word for behaviors, I call them fundamentals. So in my company, we had a series of behaviors we taught that were called our fundamentals. So when I use the word fundamental, I'm using that word interchangeably with the word behavior, just the title I give to behavior. So what I do with companies is I say, take the fundamentals that we've created, whatever number there may be, and if you look at them, you'll see that they could be divided into two different groupings. Some of those are what I would call intrinsic or what you described as innate. Others are more learned behaviors. So for example, a trait like, let's say customer service that you're referring to. I think that there are some people who really get customer service, that at their core, they just know how to help people, how to care about people. It's just part of their makeup. And there are other people who just don't get it. And someone who really doesn't understand customer service, you could give them all the training and tell them all the rules and all the procedures you want. But at their core, if they're not somebody who really cares about helping other people, you're not going to make them, you're not going to teach them how to care about helping people. It's just not part of who they are. So that's an innate trait. A learned behavior would be something that we could teach people. For example, one of mine I mentioned was called practice blameless problem solving. I don't think that's innate. I think that some people just, you know, get taught that they just grew up in an area where you you blame people a lot. And I could teach them that in our environment, we don't waste our time blaming people. We just worry about fixing problems and learning from them. And so I think that's a learned behavior. So what I suggest that companies do is you take your fundamentals that you've created and you divide them and you say, here's this list of fundamentals tend to be innate in people. They either have it or they don't. This list of fundamentals I can teach people to be better at. Then let's take the innate ones, and those are the ones we have to recruit around. Because by definition, if they're innate, either you have them or you don't, they're intrinsic, well then i got to find people who have it, because I'm not going to somehow make them have it. The learned ones, I can teach them. So I think we do want to develop interview questions and select for people who have the intrinsic qualities that we're looking for, because by definition, we're not going to be able to change who they are. So if we go back to your experience at RSI and, you know, talking mm-hmm. about 15 family members that were there, when you defined this and made it really clear about what the behaviors are that you were looking for, and perhaps, you know, you had a list of what was innate and what could be trained, was there any any reason to take a harder look at some of the family members that were working there and determine that they weren't a right fit for the company going forward? Um, that did end up happening <laughs> in a way. I mean, it wasn't as intentional as that because what I created over time was very incremental or iterative. So at different stages of my career, I did most of what I did in almost my entire career running my company was very instinctive that I did things because it just felt right to me. And then later I reflected upon what I did to ask myself, so, wow, that really worked well. I wonder why that works so well. What does that tell me about leadership, about organizational behavior, about organizational dynamics, about how people operate? And I started to then articulate some of that in a more formal way and teach that to my own people as well as other people. So it wasn't all upfront. I had these recognitions, even the recognition that you know some of these behaviors are innate and some of them are intrinsic. It's only afterwards that I thought about, hmm, this is interesting. Some of these seem to be innate, some seem to be intrinsic. So again, most of of everything that I've learned and everything that I teach people came out of just doing things that seemed instinctively right to me, but then reflecting upon those and discovering or discerning underlying principles that were at play, even though when I was doing them, I wasn't aware of the underlying principles. So back to your question, in, in my own company, I really just started to articulate, these are things that we need to do. And 
we just continue to teach that, teach that more and more and more and make that happen. What happens when you do that is that the clearer you are about the culture you're creating, the more obvious it becomes when some people don't fit, whether those people are family people or those people are non-family people. When you're not very clear about what you're looking for, what you're trying to create, you just, all you know is, boy, I just keep, I'm always frustrated with that guy or that woman, or it just doesn't seem to be working, but you can't quite put your finger on why, because you're not very clear in your own mind about what you want. The clearer you become about articulating exactly what is the culture we want to build here, and what does that culture look like, and what are the behaviors that are, are, are indicative of that culture, that, that are the cornerstones of that culture, the clearer we become about that, the more obvious it becomes to you and to others when somebody doesn't fit. I see this with my clients all the time, that, that when we first start to develop a set of fundamentals and roll them out and start practicing them, very quickly, the, the sort of, it's the opposite of the cream rises to the top. Those who, those who don't fit in just sort of like stick out very quickly, and it becomes apparent that eh, these people aren't going to fit here and aren't going to make it. In my own family, yes, I did have one of those <laughs> over time, which was a painful incident, but health had to be dealt with. Yeah, I, I was just uh, talking with a friend the other day who implemented his fundamentals in his company. And as mm -hmm. they sat around the conference room table discussing them and formalizing them and finalizing them, you know, everybody knew that one of the team members w wasn't a fit mm -hmm. to these fundamentals that they were agreeing upon. And they quit mm -hmm. the next day. <laughs> and, you know, he said he, w he wouldn't have fired them because they were a high performer, but he knew they weren't a cultural fit. And so, you know, in your book, Fundamentally Different, I think you talk a little bit about Jack Welch and the, the kind of system he used to look at, you know, performance and culture. And you could have high performance, but if you're a poor cultural fit, it requires termination. Um, so what are your thoughts on that when people start and, you know, there's, a, there's this tug of war for most owners when they have a high performance individual and, you know, typically I've seen it most frequently in sales. So they've yeah. got a sales guy that's performing really well, bringing in a lot of business, but they create a ton of havoc in their wake. They're not a good cultural fit and they don't want to eliminate them because they're worried. So, how, yeah. you know, maybe you could share some experience around that. Sure. So, and every company deals with that. You know, I talk about that when I work with companies on, I refer to it in terms of, of how you create accountability for your culture. And I always ask, you know, I'll be with a group of CEOs and I'll ask them this question. I'll ask, what's the single biggest thing you can do to demonstrate seriousness or accountability about your culture? And people will say, well, you know, if you got to do it yourself and you got to teach it or reward it. And I say, no, that's not it. And I finally get somebody usually in an audience to, to raise their hand and say, you fire somebody. And I say, you're exactly right that almost every company I've ever worked with or even seen has at least one person and usually more who needs to be fired. And exactly as you said, Noah, there's somebody who, who is a high performer in some regards, but in every other way is a pain in the butt and is, is opposite of everything you said was important in your company. And about 80% of the time, they're a salesperson, exactly as you said. It's about 80% sales, about 10% finance, and about 10% technical. But what they all have in common is they have something that you're afraid to lose. So in the case of sales, they're one of our highest sales performers or they have lots of important client relationships and I'm fearful that if I got rid of them, would I lose all that production or would I lose you know, those relationships? If it's a, a finance person, it's the same thing. You know, They've been here for 27 years and they know our finances inside out. How could we ever replace Joe? And yet Joe is a pain in the butt and everything is opposite of what we said. And I always say to people that you know, when you allow that person to stick around, you're basically sending a very clear message to your organization. You're saying to your organization that our culture is really important around here unless you produce enough business. That's what you're saying. 
um, that that's for sale. That that, that you know, if, if you produce enough business, it all becomes you know, it becomes unimportant the culture. And I once heard somebody make this comment. I think there's a lot of truth to this. They said that the best way for me to know your culture is to look at the behavior that you tolerate. Because what you allow to go on in your company, that's your real culture. I don't care about the beautiful signs and posters you put on your walls. It's what you allow to go on, what you tolerate, that's your real culture. And when you finally get around to working up the courage of the CEO to make that decision to fire that salesperson or that whoever that is such a pain in the neck and so opposite of what you said your culture was about, it's fascinating that there are three things that happen every single time. The first thing that happens is everybody else in the organization says, what took you so long? We've, you know, it's about time. We've been wondering when you're going to do something about this person. And so everybody sees that. Second thing that happens is the CEO usually says to him or herself, wow, why did I wait so long? Because all of a sudden they realize that the world is so much better without this pain in the neck in their company. <laughs> the third thing that happens all the time is almost never do they lose all the things they were afraid of losing? So that production gets replaced by somebody else, those important relationships get re-secured by somebody else. You know, the finance person gets replaced and they often find that the next person is even better than the person they had before. So those things that, that, that fear that we had that kept us from doing what we knew in our gut was the right thing to do ends up not even being a, a fear that materializes or, or it doesn't materialize in reality. But ultimately, we're, we are compromising everything we said we stood for when we allow that person to be in our company. So the Evernote CEO uh, has a particular framework that I think is really awesome. And he says there's a distinction between uncomfortable decisions and difficult decisions. In the uncomfortable decision, we know what we should do. We just don't want to do it. And mm -hmm. in the difficult decision, we're challenged by the right answer. And that when we evaluate decisions in that framework, we realize that most decisions are uncomfortable and not difficult. Yeah, it's an, I hadn't heard that. It's an interesting way of thinking of it. The, the yeah. way that, that I, I think of a similar framework is that I say to people that we always want to make, we, we want to separate what the right decision is from how to do it which is a somewhat similar thing to what you're saying. It is pretty clear to us what the right decision is. This person needs to be fired or we need to make this move or we need to do that. We know kind of what to do, but we don't know how to do it. And so we don't know how to fire that person or how to, to make the decision. Let, let me give you a good example that's even more challenging, but just as clear is, let's say you have somebody who's not a high performer, but they're a really good person who's been with you for a long time and you feel a sense of loyalty to them. But yet they're not getting the job done. They don't have the ability or whatever to, to perform at the level that you need. And, and yet it just feels cold and heartless to get rid of them. And yet I say to people that you know, the first thing you have to do is understand and make what the best business decision is. The second thing you can do and you have to do is think about how do we go about doing that? So we can get rid of that person, but we can do it in a way that honors our culture and our values. So let's say in the example I was just giving, it's somebody who hasn't been performing and doesn't have the ability to perform, but they're a longtime loyal person and you feel some sense of indebtedness to them. Well, that doesn't keep us from making the right decision, the right decisions that can't be part of our company anymore. But we can take care of that by giving them lots of severance pay, by by how we, we could give them career counts, and we could do all kinds of things to treat 
them in a way with compassion and respect and honoring them and honoring their contributions so we can handle it in, in a, a way that honors our culture. But that doesn't mean that we, that we get that somebody gets to stick around here if they can't perform. So it's a, it's a separation to me of what's the right decision with how do we do it? Often, I don't know how to get rid of that person, so we just keep them on because we, we collapse those two into one, similar to what you're saying. Yeah. I read your book, Fundamentally Different, which I think is, you know, such a great piece of work. And everybody that I've spoken to that has read it and also has read other books on culture and values, but, you know, everyone has essentially unanimous agreement that it's the best book out there. So thank you for putting well, it together that. and for sharing it. The challenge for me when I read the examples, whether it's your mm-hmm. company or other companies, is that it's hard to argue against any of the things that people write down. You know, mm-hmm. they, they seem intuitively like, yeah, of course, that's the way people would want to do business. So yeah. how do these fundamentals differ between companies? What are the main drivers? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I work with companies to help them develop a set of fundamentals for them, because, you know, I have a certain set for mine, but mine are different than what some other companies might be. What you end up finding is that about 85% of them are essentially all the same. And, and that's really not surprising when you stop and think about it, because what it takes to put a group of human beings together and get them to perform at a high level in a collaborative way really isn't very different. It really doesn't matter much what your industry is, whether you're a steel welding and fabricating company or you're a computer software company or whether you're a law firm or whether you're a construction firm or manufacturing you're still a group of human beings that you're trying to get to perform at high levels and perform in a way that, you know, that everybody works well together. And so 85% of it ends up to be largely the same. The words may be slightly different, but the concepts are all the same. About 15%, 10 to 15% will vary company to company for two reasons. One is that there could be a couple of things that are unique about a particular industry. For example, if you're in some construction or manufacturing industry, you probably have some fundamental about safety. Whereas if you're in an office environment, that's just not a big deal. It doesn't really come up much, but it's a really big deal in those other environments. So you could have a difference there. I have a client that's a food manufacturer and they have a fundamental that's called never compromise on food safety. Well, I'm not going to have that in an insurance agency. So there could be one or two things. It's not a lot that vary because of your industry. The second thing that, that varies is that the fundamentals are really a reflection of the CEO and what his or her vision is of what they want to create. And so one CEO is going to have a different personality than another. And there may be something that to you as a CEO, there's a pet peeve of yours that's just really important. It just, it just makes a big deal to you. But me as a CEO, yeah, that one doesn't, doesn't bug me so much or it's not as big a deal to me. And, and I don't say that in any kind of negative way. It's just it's your company and what's important to you. So those two little factors will vary a little bit, but 85% of it, even 90% of it is all the same from company to company. That what it takes to get a group of human beings to work really well together is mostly the same from company to company. It does. It, it, these are human beings. I always say to companies, if your company is made up of human beings, this stuff will work. Um, <laughs> it's, just about how, it's just about getting humans to behave in a certain way. It's just not complicated. And you, you know, yeah. your, your comment that you, know, you look at this stuff and it all seems kind of obvious, I say that all the time to people that people make this too complicated, I think. They make a lot of things too complicated. But I think that you know, when I look at what I've discovered about how to intentionally drive culture and what I teach other companies to do, I always warn people, it's so unbelievably obvious that it's staggering. That so often, I think, and I think this is such a shame, our society has kind of built this, that we're looking for secrets and shortcuts that, you know, you, you look at, 
you go to a bookstore and you look at the titles of books and so often they will say things like the three secrets to this and the seven secrets to that as if there's some magic secret that you don't know and that's why you don't have the degree of success that you want. And if I were willing to share you know, the secret with you, then you'd be on the inner circle like me and magically the world would become easier. It doesn't work like that. That I know this for me and, and I suspect it's true for you that virtually anything I've ever learned in my life that I thought was really important, it's like I hit myself in the head afterwards and think, how did I get to be this age and not have seen that before? Because it is so straightforward and so obvious. But I think what happens is that sometimes you read a book or you hear a speaker who's able to put together thoughts in a way that isn't complicated, but just never occurred to you before, that, that you, your response to it is, you know, that makes total sense to me. I just never thought of it from that perspective before. And that's really all that all that I do. My stuff is just so straightforward and so obvious and so non-confusing that everybody, after they read it or learn about it, say they always say, God, that makes sense to me. Yeah, that sure, that would work. I just never thought of it that way before. So it is really straightforward. It's funny. I was with a client the other day and he had told me he finished reading my books. I said, you know, what did you, mm-hmm. what did you think? He said, you know, it was great. I didn't learn a thing. Other than mm-hmm. I, there's a whole bunch of stuff I'm supposed to be doing that I know I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, yeah. he just pointed it out to me again. I think that's perfect. That's exactly what yeah. I want. You know, there's yeah, nothing I, new I in the world. True. And I, there really isn't anything new. But I think that the, the key is that there are some people, and these to me are the better speakers, writers, authors, teachers. There are some people who have a better ability than others to synthesize ideas or put them together in a way that's easier to digest. So it's not that the concepts are anything new, but just if it's explained to you in one way versus another way, it causes the the reader or the listener uh, or the student to say, yeah, sure, that makes total sense to me. I never thought of it like that before. And that's really the skill that the best ones have is to be able to take ideas and combine them and, and explain them in ways that make them more available to most people than they've seen it before. I want to move to talk about your transaction where you sure. sold RSI. Mm-hmm. And walk me through a little bit of the decision matrix that you went through when you decided it was time to have your ownership transferred to another owner. And sure. uh, what was that process like and what was the decision like for you? Sure. Well, what happened, the, the quick story of, of, of what happened was that I wasn't actually looking to sell at the time. We were doing well, making a lot of money, having fun, building a great company. And I had heard through somebody I met that there was a reason that at that time, valuations in our industry were at an all-time high. And I thought, well, shoot, maybe I should just investigate. If that's true, let's find out a little bit more about that. So I hired a consultant to, who worked exclusively in the insurance industry, who, who did deals all the time. And I just I called him first just to say, so tell me about that. Like, is that true? And why is that true? And he explained to me some of the reasons that that was going on. And so I decided to hire him to just do a valuation study to look at what do you think you know, doing enough deals in this industry as you do, what do you think we could command? And so we hired him to do that. But in the meantime, while he was busy working on that, I built myself an Excel spreadsheet model. And the model that I built myself was to answer a very simple question for myself from an economic perspective. And the question I wanted to answer is, for any deal that we might consider doing, how many times, in terms of the, 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 the money that I would get, how many times my current income is that equal to on a pre-tax present value basis? In other words, here I am sitting here at that point and I'm making a lot of money and I'm successful and life is good. And so, you know, why would I want to stop that? And I figured if somebody was willing to give me, you know, five times that, 
in exchange for having my company, I'd probably say, you know what, I'll just keep my company and I'll keep making a lot of money. If somebody wants to offer me 10 times what I'm making, you know, I might, I might, that might be worth thinking about. If somebody wants to offer me 15 or 20 times what I'm making right now, you can have my company. <laughs> you know, here it is. It's yours. I'll take that if I could take all my chips off the table and someone wants to give me that kind of money. So I want to build this model that would translate any number, any deal terms, it would spit out of the model a number that says this is equal to 16 times your current earnings or nine times your current earnings or whatever on a after-tax present value basis. So I built that model and it ended up that we were offered a deal that was 15 or 20 times what I was earning. And it was a no-brainer to me to do. But the other thing that was really important in that process, and I, I suspect you deal with this with your clients all the time, is that as I started the process of thinking about, for the first time, seriously, should we sell this company, I had this, like, I, this recognition, which sounds so simple, but it was important. And it was the recognition that what I had built was an asset. Not just, you know, it wasn't just what I do every day. It was an asset. And as soon as I had this like obvious recognition that, gee, this is an asset that I own here, what that meant to me, the reason that was so important is that if it's an asset, then it becomes clear that someday I'm going to sell that asset and exchange that asset for a different asset called cash. And once I accept that, now it's just a question of, okay, well, when will I sell it? To whom will I sell it? Under what terms will I sell it? How will that whole transaction work? But this is an asset that's going to be sold someday. And it's funny, I think many business owners, particularly ones who started their own companies, as silly as it sounds, we don't always think of it as an asset. We just, you know, it's my company. It's just what I do every day. And it doesn't occur to us that it's just an economic asset, you know, for better or worse. But I think you know, once you accept it's an asset, now it's just a question of, okay, what are the conditions under which it would make sense for me to sell this asset or to exchange this asset for a different asset? Yeah. And so through the course of the transaction, was there anything that you learned that was a, a big surprise in terms of negotiating with the eventual buyer? I would say there were a couple of things. I don't know if they were big surprises, but they, they were interesting to me. So, so first thing I would say is that as it relates specifically to culture, that you know, you wonder about, you know, is there real economic value in driving culture? And what I found was, and I didn't do any of it for this reason, but we know that, of course, that in virtually every industry, there are standard industry multiples of how many times your EBITDA or your earnings will do most companies sell for in that particular industry. And of course, it varies industry to industry. So if I look at what the delta was between what standard industry multiples were at that time in my industry and the offer that I was given, it was a pretty significant difference. That delta was worth to me about $10 million. And so to a great extent, I can attribute that $10 million delta to what we had built, that, that we built something that had more value than simply the underlying economic earnings. So that was one clear thing that jumped out to me, that there was real economic value in what we had created above and beyond simply the earnings stream. The second thing was that in the process of doing our deal, I followed, as I guess, you know, this is a common theme in my business experience, I followed my instincts a lot more than I followed conventional wisdom. And what I mean by that is two things specifically. One is that Everybody had warned me about all the companies that will lie and cheat and steal and tell you all kinds of things in the courting process, but then after the deal's done, you know, the whole world will change and you just can't trust people. And, you know, that's just how it is. 
And that's just not the way I approach business and the way I approach the world. And my experience was the people we, everybody that we negotiated with and certainly the people we ultimately sold to were honorable, good people who wanted to create a win-win situation. I did have the chance to speak to many others who they had acquired in years previous. And everybody that I spoke to said, these are great people that at every point in the deal, they did everything that they said they would do. And if there was ever a question about whether it, you know, how to interpret a certain specific deal term, they interpret it to the advantage of the seller. And I found that to be true, that, that we sold to good quality human beings who wanted to create a win-win. It wasn't some cutthroat, you can't trust anybody kind of thing. I'm not discounting that may happen in the world, but I think you find a lot of what you're looking for. So I tended to deal you know, from a basis of trust, and, and I found that to be reciprocated. The third thing that, that I think was significant and was another example of me following my instincts versus conventional wisdom is that everybody always told us that you know, when, you, when you're negotiating a deal, it's really important that you don't tell anybody that you keep this as closely guarded a secret as you can because you know the, the more people who know, the more it's going to leak. And if it leaks out, then you got all kinds of other problems. And so you, know, you can't tell anybody. You just got to keep this just to you. And that just didn't feel right to me that I had a senior leadership team of nine or 10 people who were my core team. And I couldn't imagine one day just announcing to my leadership team, my core people who I had trusted and ran the company with, I couldn't imagine one day announcing, by the way, I sold the company yesterday. That just felt so counter to all the trust that I had built in, built up. So I decided from the very beginning that I was going to include my leadership team at every stage of, of the discussion, from my initial thinking about this being a possibility, to who I was negotiating with, to what the terms were looking like, to what was going to happen. And I think it honored our relationship, and it also had them, by the time we did the deal, they were excited about it and thought it was a great thing and were, were, you know, thought this was wonderful, and where it made a big impact besides just the trust that we had built was when we announced it to all of our employees, which I'll mention one thing about that as well, but when we announced it to all of our employees, when they would go to their managers to say, oh my God, you know, you know, what do you think about this? Well, the managers knew about this for months and were excited about it and were able to convey that excitement to the employee. Had the managers just heard about it on, on the same day as the employees, I can't imagine how that would have gone. <laughs> when the employee goes to their manager and says, what does this mean? And the manager says, I don't know. I just heard about it today too. That's just going to create panic in the organization. So following my instincts and including my senior leadership team from, every, from the very beginning, which is non-conventional, just made a lot of sense to me. I did the same thing was true as it related to the communication to my entire staff. This was really fascinating that you know when we decided it was time to tell the whole company that we were going to do this, it was a you know, it was a big deal that that all these people who had bought into our vision for all these years and bought into me to a great extent, and now I'm going to announce to them that I sold the company. That's a pretty big deal. And one of the decisions I made there as well was that I told our entire staff a few days before the deal was absolutely signed. So the company we sold it to, their board of directors had to approve it. So we had signed off on the terms, but it had to be officially, officially, officially approved. And a few days before that official date, I announced to my employees what was going on. And it was really fascinating that it was only a matter of a few days, but qualitatively, there's a very big difference in perception between saying to my employees, I want to explain to you what's going to be happening next week and why we're doing this, et cetera, and saying to my employees, I want to tell you what I did yesterday. 
it just feels more respectful to them to tell them what's going to be happening versus what I already did. It's just, it's only a few days. It doesn't make a big difference, but it feels different and it's more honoring of the relationships that I had built. So there were some things like that I learned along the way that were somewhat unconventional, but were more consistent with the way I wanted to lead. That's great. And then how about after the transaction took place and you were working for the buyer, what were some of the surprises you had there, the things that you learned that you know, you've taken with you and, and, and on to you know, future companies that you're working with? Um, you know, so after the deal was done, I worked for a little over two years running my old division my old company as a division of this much larger company. And what I would say is that absolutely the company that acquired us did everything they said they were going to do. So there were no bait and switches. No, they said this during the courtship and did something different later. So I really didn't have any surprises there. Ultimately, I decided that after a couple of years, this didn't surprise me at all, but I, I was never, to be totally honest, I was never that interested in the employee benefits industry, the insurance industry. I was interested in leadership and organizational behavior. That's what's interests me, not so much insurance. So I never really saw myself staying in the insurance business. And further, I never saw myself, and, and, and this again, didn't surprise me that it wasn't that satisfying for me to not be in total control. And, and that wasn't because, again, it wasn't like I thought that would be fine and it was different. I didn't think it would be okay. And it wasn't because they did something different than they said. It's just a matter of fact that it's not, you know, what I want to do is lead. And when I don't have 100% control over the decisions, it's just not the same. And so I expected that that's what would happen and that is what would happen. But I have nothing but positive things to say about the company we sold to. So again, it, my leaving was not because, boy, they weren't what they said they were. No, it was just a, a recognition that it wasn't a game I was interested in playing anymore. And so I had the opportunity to leave. And, and really, it was an opportunity for me to, in a broader way, leverage all the things that I had learned and now spend my time, as I do today, teaching and working with other companies to help them learn and implement the things that I had learned over my career. So in many respects, I look at all those years up until then as the training ground for me to be doing what I'm doing now, which is much more I was about to say much more rewarding for me, but I won't even say more. I'll just say it is very rewarding. When I was running my company, that was rewarding in a different kind of way. Yeah. And since you retired from there and you wrote Fundamentally Different, maybe describe kind of the passion that you have that's ignited you to write this book and go out and teach and now work with companies to try and create high-performance cultures for them. Well, you know, it's a funny path that, that, that happened, as, as I guess so often happens in life, that things work out the way I suppose they're supposed to, even if it wasn't how I planned it. So what happened when I wrote Fundamentally Different is that I knew, I always knew I would write this book, that that so often when I had presented some of this type of material to customers and others when I was running my old company, people would often come up to me afterwards and they'd say, so when does the book come out? Because it just sounded like it lent itself to a book. So I knew someday I would do that. And what, so I retired in 2010 and I spent some time just trying to think about what I wanted to do next and still hadn't quite figured it out. But my son was kind of bugging me saying, dad, you know, when are you going to write that book that you're always talking about? So I knew that I tend to be very forward thinking and not backward thinking. So once I move on to, you know, whatever's next in my career, whenever I figure that out, if I haven't yet written this book, I'll never write it because it'll just be my old career and I'll move on to something else. So I thought, you know what, I better write this book now because otherwise it may never get written. So I sat down to write that book and I didn't write it to launch a new career. 
I wrote it to close my old career, to sort of wrap up my old career in a nice bow and say, okay, I can now put that aside. I'm now 100% complete with the old career. Let me move on to something different. So I really wrote it for that purpose. And I wrote it honestly for myself as much as anything so that I could look at what I had created over all those years and tangibly, concretely see this is the product of all of those years of learning. And as long as I was proud of it, it really didn't matter to me, honestly, whether people read it or not. It was just a good book that I felt good about. So I wrote it for that purpose. And what happened is, you know, it was a really good book and people started to read it and, and, and lots of people were getting a lot of value from it. And I had a former client of my old company who read my book and he was in uh, what's known as a Vistage group, a group of uh, a peer group of CEOs. And he called me one day and he said, you know, you should come and speak to our Vistage group about the stuff that you wrote in this book. And I said, sure, you know, I'm not doing anything else. That'd be fun to do. I'm glad to do that. And so I went in and I spoke to their group. And that led to other Vistage groups around the country starting to hear about me and writing to me and saying, hey, will you come to our group in this city on this date and talk to our group? And I wasn't doing anything else. So I thought, yeah, sure, that's fun for me. I always like talking about this. I have some passion for it. So I started to talk to these other groups. And then some of those members of those groups, CEOs of those in those groups started to call me and say, you know, I heard you talk about that stuff. Could I hire you to help me in my own company do what you were just talking about? And I said, well, sure, I'm not doing anything else. I could do that. Just want it fun. And so the next thing I knew, here I am. It's been about two and a half years since I did that first talk. In the last two and a half years, I think I looked the other day, I've done something like 130 talks in the last two and a half years. And I've worked with probably individually with 25 or 30 companies in all different industries all over the country, helping them to implement the stuff that I teach. So it really wasn't my intention that this was all supposed to lead to a, a career doing what I'm doing, but it has. And so I find myself no longer retired and traveling around the country, speaking about teaching CEOs how to intentionally build a high-performing culture and then consulting and working with companies one-on-one, helping them to implement really high-performing cultures. And it's been fascinating to watch and amazing to watch the kind of impact it has on every single company. I've never yet not had one that goes fabulously well. Every single one of them is just rocking and rolling. So it's been very exciting, but accidental. That's great. Maybe you could just share like two or three of your you know, most fun and rewarding <laughs> stories about the experiences you've had with these other companies. What I would say is that, first of all, the, the range of companies that I work with are in every industry you can imagine. From I have a client in Chicago that does $30 million a year of snow removal. I have a company in Texas that's a food manufacturer. I have a, a beer distributor in South Jersey. I have a home health care company in Florida. I have a company that, that's a steel welding and fabricating company in Kansas City, a law firm in Arizona, a financing firm in New York City, a company that builds foundations for skyscrapers in Miami. So they're all over over the board in every industry you can possibly imagine. So it's been fascinating to see the, the incredible diversity of companies and the fact that this stuff works in every one of them. But a couple of just simple uh, stories. I have a company, this company that I mentioned in Fort Worth, Texas, that's a food manufacturer. And I was talking to the CEO, actually he left me a voicemail to be more accurate, uh, a couple of weeks ago. And he said, he was explaining to me that they, it's a company called Five Star Custom Foods. And they have uh, these fundamental that are known as the five-star way. They've been practicing for a year or so, and he's loving seeing what's happening. But he told me he was on the phone, or he was meeting with a new potential customer recently, and this customer would be the second largest customer they have in their whole company. And as they were meeting with the customer, they were sharing with them some of the five-star way and their fundamentals and what they do and how they practice them. And this 
potential customer said was just blown away and said to them to the, the CEO, you know, I, I've only worked with one other co- one other company that I've ever seen do something like this, and we love it. And the CEO reported to me that he was almost certain that they were going to get the job. And clearly, you know, the bigger reason they were getting the job is because they had whatever products and services the company needed. It wasn't simply their culture, but their culture was a significant impact that because they practice the kinds of things that they do, it caused the prospect to feel comfortable that this is the kind of quality company I want to work with. So it was exciting to see the CEO see in tangible ways the impact it was having, not just on his employees, but on sales uh, and acquiring a really large client. So that was pretty cool. Another another thing that was, that was exciting to see recently is one of my, uh, I mentioned I have a, a client in Miami that they build, they create the pilings and foundations for skyscrapers and real tall buildings. And often it's the case that the CEOs of companies that might have more blue collar workers wonder at first, you know, this is great stuff you're talking about, David, but you know, what about my blue collar guys? I mean, these are heavy construction guys. Are they going to give two bits about this stuff? Are they going to roll their eyes and think this is all stupid? And I see over and over and over again that employees at every level really take this on and get excited about it. And in this particular company, they practice their fundamentals every week, and most, as most of my clients do. And one of the things they've done is they've asked their employees, every other week they ask their employees to contribute their own thoughts. So here's this week's fundamental, and employees contribute their own thoughts via text, video, email, whatever method they want about this, uh, this week's fundamental. And they pick whoever has the best one and they give them a little gift certificate. And this, so they, they sent me an example of what they were doing. And what they showed me was, and it was just a fascinating video. So it's about a 45 second video. And it was a video that three construction workers made on a construction site about one of the fundamentals, which we call speaking straight, which is all about having direct, honest, clear conversations with each other. And to watch three heavy duty construction workers making a video about speaking straight was just, you know, it's a simple video. It wasn't the most amazing thing, but it's just so cool to see how engaged those kinds of guys are. The guys at that level who you might think are going to roll their eyes and think this is all stupid stuff, really take it on and really get engaged and are really seeing the benefit of what it means to speak straight. So to see that level of engagement at every level through the organization is just fascinating to see. And I see that everywhere I go. It's amazing to see the impact. That's great. What else would you like to share with our audience before we wrap up? Well, what I would say um, is that the, you know, it's really where I started that if you stop and think that almost all of us would recognize that the culture of any organization has a direct impact on how people perform. You know, we all know that, that you can just think of, you know, companies you've worked for. And if you've worked in one company where, you know, the culture is nobody seems to care and it's just nobody doing quality work doesn't matter. And you've worked in a different company where everybody seems to be really driven to do the best they can. It affects, it affects how people perform. So we all kind of just, you don't need to read a science book or, or, or a textbook to know that, that our own experience tells us that the environment we're in has a direct bearing on how we perform. So if we accept that as true, then as I said earlier, it just seems so darn logical that if you could purposely, not accidentally, but purposely create the environment or create the culture that had the highest probability of causing your people to perform at the highest levels, wouldn't it make total sense to you that, of course, then you would be more successful? And it is that straightforward that that culture is such a driver of success that it's a crime not to be intentional about it, to allow it to just morph into whatever it becomes as opposed to being intentional. So you know, I think the key is intentionality, purposely creating the culture 
that you want to do, and it's not that complicated to do. Great. Well, for any of our listeners that haven't read Fundamentally Different, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, we'll have a link to it on our transcripts on our website, divestopedia.com. I'd certainly encourage you to read it. David, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way? Uh, best way is my email. I'll give you email and phone number. My email is david at djfriedman, and Friedman is F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N, david at djfriedman.com. My website is www.djfriedman.com, and my cell phone is 609-472-3960. And as you said, my book is available on, on Amazon, and it's in every format you might want. So it's in hardcover, paperback, ebook. So for those that prefer to download books like I do, you can get the ebook version on Amazon, and it's also an audiobook format. So you can download it from Audible, and I do the audio myself. So any form you want, it exists. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks to all our listeners. Please don't forget to rate us on iTunes and share your feedback with me, Noah, at freedomadv.com. And we hope to have you listen again to our future interviews. Thanks for listening to the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast. Make sure to visit us on the web at divestopedia.com to see more of our resources for entrepreneurs who want to sell their business for the best price and terms. Whether you are thinking of selling, have started the sales process, or are post-deal, we aim to arm you with the knowledge required to maximize value and limit your downside risk. If you have any questions about today's podcast, you can contact your host, Noah Rosenfarb, a CPA and personal CFO to business owners planning their transition at 855-540-0400. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us your feedback. Until next time, this is the Divestopedia Exit Strategy Podcast.